haven't met you yet, I hope I get to at some point today, especially if you're visiting. We're glad that you're here with us. So I just want to begin by saying I love you, church, and I mean that. Just this last week, um, someone was remarking to me, not part of our church, but someone was remarking to me just the affection that they see from our congregation to um, me and my family. And I was able to 100% agree with what this person was observing from a distance. And so in all of the ways that you show us kindness, is just a personal thank you um, to me and my wife and our three kids. We just want to thank you. Um, we feel like we're part of the family here, and we hope you do too. And so uh, we're so glad to be in life and community with you. Um, just a reminder, we welcome the noises of children in our service. We have so many kids here. Um, but if you feel like you need to step out and your kids didn't go downstairs, we do have a live video feed. You can go out these doors and go to the right. And at the end of the hallway is the prayer room and the service is being streamed into there, if that's helpful for you. Um, I hope you don't feel too overwhelmed at the amount of information, just sheer information we're throwing at you today. But it is that time of year at Crestmont. I feel like leading up to September and October, we are always trying to say everything that we need to say and say it well so that you can jump into things in the fall. There's always a lot going on here after a month of, of relative quiet in the month of August. So I hope you're getting excited. I actually have two more things that I just wanted to mention personally myself. The first, I'm excited about this. We're starting what we're calling ministry tracks here at Crestmont. And these are workshops that we're making available to you uh, throughout the year, they'll be ongoing on a bunch of different topics from children's ministry and youth ministry, learning to teach to adults or share the gospel with your neighbors or how to care for the poor and marginalized and empowering ways. Um, one thing we are consistently hearing from folks at Crestmont is that they want to be equipped for ministry. That does my heart so good to hear that people are catching the vision, not just to be observers, but participants in kingdom work and ministry. And we just want to provide opportunities for you to learn and to be equipped. So the first one is coming up September 16th. We're calling it, How Do I Hear God? And all of these ministry tracks will happen in the prayer room here at the church from 8.30 to 11.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. We'll provide a light breakfast. There's no cost associated with it. And as long as we have five people signed up for it, then we will hold the ministry track. And if at any point we don't have five people signed up for it, we'll just reschedule it for a later time in the year. So these are going to be in rotation. But I'm really excited about this first one. Um, our friends, um, Jenny and Tim Hannes, are going to be uh, teaching this one. Some of you have already been in environments with them um, where they have facilitated just answering this question. How can we hear the Lord, be led by the Spirit? I know that's a question that many of you are asking, and it'll be very practical, I think, for you. Um, so we hope you find that interesting and you want to come. And lastly... I know it's Labor Day weekend. As I was coming into church this morning, I was able to think of so many people who I just know are on vacation or, or traveling this weekend. There's a lot of people not with us today. But next Sunday is really the start in many ways of our ministry year, and we're having what we call a launch service next Sunday. 
I'll be preaching next Sunday, but um, my sermon will be a little bit different because I'll be taking us through four words that God has put on our heart for the upcoming year. And so it's just going to be a chance for us to get on the same page as a church family about what God has for us in this next year. Um, I'm excited for that. And we have just some exciting uh, um, things to announce, exciting ministry initiatives. And so we're excited for that next week. So I hope you'll come out and join us next week. All right. Well, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And um, today's sermon is... On one hand, a heavy topic, but I hope you'll find it encouraging because the context of today's message in the Gospels is about Jesus delivering a man from a demonic spirit. If you've been coming to Crestmont for any length of time, you know that for the last two years, we've been working our way chronologically through the Gospels, and we are in the third year of that, actually, and so this is where we find ourselves this morning in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. And like I said, the context of Jesus' teaching here is a deliverance. A person is brought to him who is demonized, and the result of this demonization is that they are blind and mute. Now, there's something about passages like this that I think inherently offend our uh, Western worldviews. Our scientific naturalism makes it hard for us to sometimes understand what's going on here, but if you've been coming to Crestmont, you know that as we've been working our way through the Gospels, we have often had to address this issue of demonic spirits. In the worldview of Scripture, this, um, these spirits that are fallen angels, malevolent spirits that work against the purposes of God and against his people. And when Jesus comes, he does more than just teach some good things and do some miracles. There's an event that is happening in the coming of Jesus and his ministry on the earth. It's an event that had been prophesied repeatedly in the Old Testament. It is the coming of the kingdom of God, the rule of God on earth. When we talk about God's kingdom, we're just talking about God's rule. When he's in charge, what do things look like? What do relationships and communities and, and bodies and, and spiritual lives look like? under the rule of God. Another way to talk about the coming of the kingdom is to say that we're talking about how are the things that are wrong in the world made right because of the rulership of God, or how does the rulership of God bring order to the disorder that has been caused by sin? All of those things are ways to describe the coming of the kingdom. And so it's no surprise that in this cosmic event, when Jesus in his ministry is bringing the kingdom, that it affronts the personal powers of evil that are very real yet invisible. And it seems like everywhere that Jesus goes, he's confronting a spirit that is oppressing someone in some form or fashion. If you've been coming to Crestmont, you've heard us talk about how what demons really love to exploit is passivity in the human will. They love to make people passive make them feel like they don't have a will. That is the case in what has happened here to this person. They've become blind and mute. Obviously, not all blindness and not all muteness is the result of uh, demonic activity, but for this person, it was the result of a demon that had taken away their ability to see and speak. And so Jesus restores this person's ability, and what this brings about are false claims against Jesus by religious leaders. 
I love this because I, I heard a quote earlier this week that's so true, that if your tendency is to look at healing or the miraculous and say, that's the devil, but to look at sickness and say, oh, that's God, then we probably need to read our New Testaments again, don't we? Um, that says more, not about the theology of the New Testament, but about our comfort levels with the supernatural. And when God wants to do something, he often does offend our logic, offend what we think is possible and impossible so that he can really um, do something spectacular to draw glory and attention uh, to himself and to bless people. So the religious leaders of his day reject Jesus' miracles and his miraculous claims. And in this passage, what they begin to do, they don't say it outright, but you can hear it in, in their claims about Satan being behind what, what Jesus is doing in this passage. They're claiming that he isn't sent from God, that he actually is some kind of sorcerer, some kind of blasphemer, because he's able to do these miracles. So with all that being said, we're going to read Matthew 12 and begin in verse 22. If you could stand to your feet as we read out of the Gospels, we do this just to show our honor to God's word. We're going to read to verse 30. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house? Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Would you pray with me? Lord, even now we just pray for your protection over us and over this room as we look at a passage like this. Because Lord, we're not just reading about realities that were once true and are true no longer but we're reading about realities that affect our lives, the lives of our kids and our communities. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment. And, Lord, especially, I pray that you would minister to our fears this morning so that we can walk in the boldness that you give us. And, Lord, I can't preach without you, so I need you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. Jesus' teachings very often are about calibrating our lives to the kingdom, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's calibrating the perceptions of the people who are watching this, his disciples and these religious leaders, to the realities of the kingdom. My main idea this morning is that with Jesus, we are caught on the winning side of a spiritual war. Aren't you glad we're on the winning side? Amen? We are caught on the winning side of a spiritual war. When these religious leaders come to Jesus with the accusation of sorcery. That is, that he is casting out these demons, doing what he is doing by the power of the devil. Jesus uh, begins a series of responses to explain why this simply can't be the case. 
First of all, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus makes the statement that the devil will not work against his own kingdom. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, Jesus says. The devil's not going to work against his own kingdom. That's not to say that the enemy sometimes might not give a sorcerer or a person who works in magic the ability to seemingly cast out a demon that was common in Jesus' day. But it's just to say that what's happening in Jesus isn't, friends, it's not the occasional casting out of a demon. What's happening in Jesus is a full frontal assault against the enemy wherever he is oppressing people, wherever Jesus goes. This is all-out war. The kingdom of God is invading the world for the benefit of the human race to free people from oppression. And so Jesus is just saying, this isn't possible. This isn't a strategy that Satan would employ. He wouldn't stage this all-out assault on himself because what he desires is to oppress and to ruin the human race. Jesus then points out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. This statement in verse 27, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you drive them out? He's making a veiled reference to the practices of the exorcists in Jesus' day who often did employ the tactics of magic to try to free people. And Jesus knew this, and the religious leaders that he was talking to knew it. So in some sense, there's a hypocrisy here. The religious leaders are accusing Jesus of doing something that they themselves have dabbled in. And friends, even today, the reality is, you know, I've met all kinds of people um, who dabble in supernatural realities apart from Christ. This is something that happens. One time I was at a restaurant, I think I've shared this story before, and someone came down and sat with me and someone else from this church as we were eating there, and we engaged with this person for an hour. And listen, we don't demonize people. Honestly, this person had gotten involved in the type of magic that she had gotten involved in because she really wanted to help people. You know, her attempt was to try to help other people. Now, we think that's misguided, but a great conversation ensued, you know, about that and about the dangers of dabbling in power apart from Jesus. But the teaching of Scripture is that we don't need magic to deal with uh, the assault of the enemy. Magic has to do with the manipulation of power. When you think of the word magic or witchcraft, you should always think of the word manipulation. It has to do with manipulating power or people or relationships. People dabble in witchcraft under that definition, even if they don't know they're doing it, just because they're manipulative, you know, out of their fears. Um, but scripture teaches we don't need manipulation to deal with the enemy. All we need to do is position ourselves under the rule and reign of God. It's just a life properly submitted to God and his rule that makes the enemy flee as we go through life and minister. That's where our authority comes from. We don't have authority in and of ourselves against the enemy, but under the authority of Jesus, we have all the authority that we need, right, to be able to deal with him. And because of that, there's no reason to fear. This is why, friends, if you want to talk about spiritual warfare, we should talk about things like worship, right? Because worship is fundamentally putting ourselves under the rule and reign of God, saying, God, we're exalting you to this place and recognizing our place in relation to who you are. The enemy hates that. We want to talk about spiritual warfare? We should talk about things like obedience, right? Because as we live lives of obedience close to the heart of God, the enemy loses his grip on us. So Jesus points out the 
hypocrisy. Sorry. Next, Jesus provides the explanation of his power in casting out demons not to be magic, but to be the coming age of the kingdom of God, that an epic battle is ensuing, that they are witnessing in front of them. So Jesus says, if by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The religious leaders in Jesus' day believed that the Spirit of God had not been active on the earth in a long time since the prophets had prophesied hundreds of years before, but they knew that it had been prophesied that the Spirit's activity would once again pick up on the face of the earth in what the prophets called the last days, the last age of human history before the kingdom came in its fullness. And Jesus is saying, that last age of human history is beginning in my ministry. It's beginning. And so this is why you're seeing this activity of the spirit and the demonic, this war happening. And then Jesus says that quite simply, these deliverances are happening with the frequency and strength that they are in Jesus's ministry because Jesus is stronger than Satan as the son of God. So Jesus says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, carry off his possession unless he first ties up the strong man? He's using this analogy to say you can't plunder the kingdom of darkness until the one who rules it has been bound. And Jesus is saying, in my ministry, you are seeing the binding up of Satan. Jesus' claim here is astounding. It's that he can raid the kingdom of darkness at will and take whatever he wants from it and restore it back to the kingdom of light. Amen? Am I preaching to someone today? That's really exciting that Jesus is able to do that right? At will, able to go into the territory of the enemy and just take what he wants. Just take what he wants, you know? Um, And he does it out of love. You know, you guys know this, right? That this is why Satan loses friends is because what Satan can't do, there's a lot of things he can do. He can employ violence. He can try to make us sick. He can try to ruin relationships. Listen, whatever anointing God has on your life, you better believe Satan wants to rob that thing from you. Absolutely. That's the war that we're in. That's just the reality of what we were born born into. But listen, Jesus is able to give back anything that the enemy takes. Isn't that amazing? He's able to do whatever he wants to be able to restore um, his kingdom and his rule to us. That's an exciting thing. And so Jesus here says in verse 30, that whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is painting this picture of reality in which the battle lines are drawn. There is good and there is evil, and it is the human race that is caught in between this battle, between the kingdom of God and what the enemy is trying to accomplish. Okay, now, this is a picture of, that Jesus is painting of contrast, isn't it? Don't you see it in the passage? Of right and wrong, of good and of evil. So I want to help us understand the worldview of the kingdom as it is presented in the Gospels, because I think in very subtle ways, it's easy for us to become misguided with this. So I want to present to you three ways that we could look at reality. You might call them worldviews, and I'm going to use plates of food to describe this. This is going to be life-changing, trust me, all right? Okay, so it's Labor Day weekend. Some of you are, you know, barbecuing. Devontae asked me yesterday, are you barbecuing? I think he was looking for food. And, and I said, 
I said, I mean, some of you may barbecue on Labor Day, um, you know, grill out. For us, it kind of feels like summer is over, you know, especially this year. So I told Devontae, I said, I'm putting my grill away on Monday. You can come over for that. But that's about the only thing, that's about the only thing that's happening in our house. Um, and so uh, it's Labor Day, though, so I want you to imagine, you know, going to a summer picnic. And you know how at some summer picnics, there's those plates that have dividers in them? How many of you are glad for the divided plates? I love a divided plate, you know, at a picnic. Some of you don't because you're another worldview, which I'm going to describe in a second. But some of you like a divided plate. I like a divided plate. I don't want my, my bean juice, thank you, Devonte, getting into my fried chicken. You know what I mean? I want those things to stay separate. So one way for us to look at the world is through this divided plate theology, right? So there's good and there's... E- just imagine the plate. There's pasta salad here, and there's, what else? Baked beans here, okay, and burgers here, and they do not touch each other. And sometimes, especially among Christians, there's this worldview that develops, that, and it feels right because of the contrast we see in passages like this, this worldview that develops that's like, there's good here, and there's bad here, and the two never mix, you know, with each other. It's the tendency to paint life in these broad um, strokes of the brush and to label whole big things as either good or bad. So that church is good. That church is bad. This music is good. That music is bad. This political party is good. That political party is bad. And so on and so forth, right? To paint with these huge brush strokes. Now, there's a reason why that kind of sounds right to us. It's because Jesus here is painting a picture of contrast. So I get why that happens. On the other side, there's some of you who like to mix your food all around. Who is that in this room? Yeah. You people make me sick. <laughs> when, I, when I go to a buffet, you know, some people go through the buffet line. I just keep my eyes on my own plate. That's all I'm saying. Because some people, it's like, you know you can go back up to the buffet, right? Like, you don't need to pile everything on to the same plate, mix it around, right, and then sit down and eat. But some people just mix it, you know, all together, all right? Friends, the world in which we live in, way different than having a divided plate theology. The world that we live in wants to have that. Um, It's scared of definitions of right and wrong. It sounds uh, offensive, to talk about right and wrong. And so the reality is that things that are wrong get called right, things that are right get called wrong. And friends, increasingly, you know, in my relationships with people in the world, I just realize that people are just genuinely confused. You know, they just don't know. Last um, week, I was watching a documentary, this last weekend actually, on child trafficking, a horrific issue. One of the big civil rights issues of our day are the millions of slaves around the world, um, many of them children who are in slavery of either sex or war. It's terrible. And someone had a conversation with, about this with me a week ago, and then I saw a documentary that was on Netflix, so I stayed up and watched it. Broke my heart. As a matter of fact, I was just asking the Lord this weekend, you know, what part do I need to play in this? What part do we need to play as a church? And it's just horrific, and it's touching lives all over. And this documentary was really well done, talking about how a newspaper that for years had a reputation of pushing the boundaries of morality, 
um, how this newspaper eventually ended up running a website that ended up housing like 80% of, of child trafficking cases that were happening in the United States. So the documentary is talking about the political mobilization to shut down this website. It's a fascinating story, and I encourage you to, to watch it. I, I can't remember the name of it right now, so... Figure it out. Um, <laughs> sorry, I know, cliffhanger. Um, but, uh, but what was fascinating is it was very easy for politicians on both sides of the political aisle to come together on this issue in a time when Washington is severely divided because everyone, regardless of their political affiliation or political ideology, recognizes that there is something horrific about this issue. But here's what's interesting. Time and time again, these groups of activists had been unsuccessful against what this website was doing in the courts. Again and again and again, the courts were telling them that there was nothing they could do. And here's why I'm telling you all of this. It was fascinating to hear the justices, sometimes far up in the United States judicial system, the justices wrestle with moral language to describe why this was wrong. They knew it viscerally. For most people, there was something in their stomach that turned when they saw it. And yet, in an increasingly licentious culture, they found it difficult to find the moral and ethical language to describe philosophically why this was wrong. And it resulted in this website lasting another decade before action was finally taken. That, friends, is the result of a society that has become fragmented in its ethics, that cannot understand right from wrong and wrong from right, and there's all kinds of reasons why that's the case. That's you buffet mixers. How do you feel now? Huh? <laughs> all right. All right. So we've divided plate people. We have the mixer people, and then I was trying to think of like what I could describe and this, this middle one, and I'm just going to, I don't know, I'm just going to go with this. We're going to call it the rice and bean plate. Now listen, your experience with rice and beans has either been really good or really bad, all right? But I'm telling you, once you have really good rice and beans, right, Devante? Yes, it's, it's life-changing. It really is, all right? So I just want you to imagine a plate full of rice and beans. And this is why I'm describing it this way. Because on that plate, there are two things, rice and beans. And they are mixed together, but they are distinguishable from one another. It's a mess, but you can still tell what is rice and what is beans, if they were made the right way. If it got all mushy, send it back to the kitchen, right? But you should be able to tell. There's rice and there's beans, but it's all mixed together. I want to suggest to you that the age in which we live, this age of the kingdom, looks like that plate. There's good and there's evil, and they are distinguishable from one another, and yet they are all mixed together in a web of complexity that requires discernment, knowledge of the truth, dependence on the Holy Spirit, because one thing that no prophet, either in Scripture or in uh, the intertestamental period, probably fully comprehended, was that, was that when this kingdom came, that 
Jesus would start his kingdom without ending the previous kingdom of darkness. So now on the face of the earth, there's not one kingdom, but there's two. One belongs to Jesus, one belongs to Satan. Both are active on the earth in the time in which we live. And so this means, friends, that you can find evidence of the kingdom of darkness near about everywhere, even in church. Jesus demonstrates this because he spends many times worshiping in the synagogue as a faithful Jew, and many times his acts of deliverance take place there. He shows that even in the midst of religion, there is places where the kingdom of darkness has gotten its hands onto things. And we know that. If we're humble enough to admit it, you know, we know it. In obvious ways, subtle ways, we know it. And likewise, the age in which we live, this is exciting to me, means that we might expect to find true evidences of the kingdom of light, of the kingdom of heaven in the places that we least expect it. We were talking about this just a couple weeks ago in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why would Jesus choose a Samaritan to be the hero of that story? Well, one reason is, is because he's teaching us to expect glimpses of the kingdom, even in people and places that we think are outside of the bounds of traditional religion. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a beans and rice world. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness, but they're all mixed in together. What this means, I already said this, but it requires a knowledge of the truth. How do we tell what is right and what is wrong? So much of Jesus' teaching is aimed at this to reduce our confusion, and we all need a healthy dose of humility that recognizes that it is very easy to call what's wrong right and what's right wrong. We need humility of heart, and here's the reason, is because sometimes we look at something and we call it the kingdom of darkness, and all it is is our prejudice, amen? All it is is our bigotry, and this is why we need the, the humility that the Spirit gives us to allow the Word and the Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds so that we can see the difference. Now, if we adopt this rice and beans worldview, and by the way, this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. Look at, just look at the ministry of Jesus. It's not a divided plate kind of thing, right? He is undoubtedly bringing the kingdom of heaven and all of its power in this passage, but he's doing it right in the middle of the mess of humanity. He's going right to where the kingdom of darkness is manifesting in this person's life, and right in that place. Do you notice, he's not saying, come to church first, where it's all kingdom, right? See, when you see the world as rice and beans, it means that you can expect to see the kingdom and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You can expect to see the battle wherever you go and to be able to discern your place in it. So this worldview allows us to tell the difference. It allows us to get right into the mix of the battle, if the worship team could come up. And it allows us to overcome in the battle, which is what Jesus does everywhere he goes. You know, seeing the world this way has freed me up so much. It's dealt with so many of the false boundaries that I built in my life that had to do with fear instead of faith, that had to do with prejudice instead of loving people. And I have seen Jesus show up at some of the wildest places. One time I got invited to this rap concert in a basement in a town here in Beaver County. And um, it was a wild environment, Kay. I'm just telling you. Um, the party was lit. I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> 
And, and listen, listen, I'm telling you right now, there was plenty that happened there that was not the kingdom of light. I'll just tell you that. Brokenness all around me. But do you know why I got invited there? I got invited there by this guy who was rapping. And he invited me because he wanted to know, would I pray for the performers before they all went on stage? And so imagine this sight. Do I look like I belong at a rap concert? I'm trying, you know? But I get, I get invited to this, and I go in, and there I am laying hands on guys. They form a line. I'm laying hands on them before they go up and rap these songs. We wouldn't sing them in church, Diane. You know what I mean? Um, we wouldn't put them up on the screen. <laughs> I'll say that. And listen, if that seems messy to you, if that seems like, well, how do you tell what's right? Well, I'm showing you what rice and beans look like. This is, this is what it looks like when you do life with Jesus. You see, he goes into the mess. He doesn't wait for the mess to come to him. He goes into it. And, and if you more and more end up living your life in this space where it feels like things don't always fit together, where it feels like being able to tell what's right and wrong seems difficult, listen, I hope you end up in that place because all it will do is drive you to the Word and to the Spirit. See? And, and listen, God doesn't want us to just like follow some easy rules as if all he's interested in is just managing some of our behavior. What he's doing is he's developing a relationship with us where we depend on what he is saying to us in the word and by the spirit. His word is authoritative in our lives. We trust him in it. Okay, friends, this is how I want to end. This is the last thing I want to say. I know I've gone over. Listen, this is a battle we're in, friends. It's a battle. I can't describe the Christian life to you as anything but. Listen, do you know, I graduated Bible college, and right after, you know, Chelsea and I moved into Aliquippa, we started doing some ministry there, and less than a year into ministry, we're ministering to a kid in one of our kids' programs, and all of a sudden, I think I've shared the story before, but all of a sudden, his voice changes, his eyes roll back into his head, and he starts telling us our ministry is going to fail in Aliquippa. By that point, I had a Bible college degree, and friends, I didn't know what to do with that. You know, all I felt was so brokenhearted that this battle is so real and so cruel that it will even come after kids. It's wrong. It will even come after kids. Listen, the problem wasn't that kid. It's the enemy exploiting weakness, you know? And I felt like I couldn't do anything. This is one of the worst days of ministry ever. Because here I am with all this knowledge. I, I know stories like this. I've written papers on the Gospels. And I didn't know what to do. But friends, in the meantime, here's what I've learned. In this battle, there are casualties. And you ought to expect that. It's a real battle with real casualties. And listen, the enemy, he will come after your kids. The enemy, he will come after your marriage. You better believe it. The enemy, he's going to come after your finances. He's going to come after whole communities. And listen, he knows no mercy, shows no mercy. So it will always be the most vulnerable among us who are hurt the worst by what the enemy does. He will always do that. There's real casualties. He'll try to steal your dreams. He'll try to take the power of your anointing. 
He'll try to take from you what God wants to do from you. But I want you to know this too, that even though there's real casualties, we do serve a risen Jesus who has the victory. I just believe that. There's a risen Jesus who has the victory. And when he is risen, listen, when who, when who we worship has gone through the casualties himself of the battle into the grave, absorbed into himself the best that the devil had to give him in terms of violence and wickedness. And he took that into the grave and still showed that the grave could not keep its hold on him. When that's our Jesus, it means, friends, you can stand on the battlefield and the one who is your captain in the midst of the battle has the ability to resurrect whatever the enemy killed. You hear me? He has the ability to resurrect those dreams. He has the ability to resurrect that anointing. He has, and listen, he will resurrect our bodies in the end. Even when casualties happen, it means it's not the end of the story with him. See, we're caught in this battle. You might be thinking, I didn't sign up for this. No, you didn't. You were born into it. We're caught in this battle. But friends, with Jesus, we're always caught on the winning side. Every time. Don't let the enemy tell you something different. You know, when it looks like things aren't changing, when it looks like things aren't turning around, we are always caught on the winning side. And I think this creates in us a kind of holy boldness, a kind of holy swag that lets us go right into where the enemy is doing his best and to show that Jesus is infinitely greater, infinitely stronger than anything that the enemy tries to work against us. Pastor, I respect. I heard him say recently, he said a member of my church came to me and said, Pastor, I opened the door and there was a dead chicken at the door. Someone was trying to like do some witchcraft or something. The person lived uh, in the city. And it's like, there was a chicken at my door and he came to the pastor and said, you know, I feel like someone's trying to put a curse on me. And you know what he told his prisoner? He said, listen, raise your hands in the air, praise Jesus, tell the enemy to leave you alone and then make yourself some chicken soup, right? <laughs> make yourself some chicken soup. What's, what's the enemy gonna do? Throw a chicken at you. Listen, I worship Jesus, the risen Lord, the risen Savior. Listen, and this is just the beginning What's coming will be the final thing when that serpent is thrown into sulfur forever. Friends, it's happening. It's happening. The kingdom will come. The kingdom will come. And I think this means that we can live with this boldness for mission. We can go wherever Jesus is calling us to go. If you'd stand to your feet, I'm just going to pray over you as we close today. If you could just close your eyes. I just really feel this in my spirit this morning. You know, I wish we would praise like we know he's won. I wish we would pray like we know the devil is no one to be afraid of. So I think the Lord wants to minister that kind of boldness to us. So much of what the enemy does, you know, when the enemy did that, that little kid standing in front of me that one day, you know what he was doing? He was trying to intimidate me. But as I was praying for you this morning, I had a picture come into my mind. It was of a bully coming to you in a classroom and you feeling afraid as this bully stood in front of you. But there was someone sitting in a desk behind you and when he got up, he looked giant and it was the risen Jesus. So you may not even realize that he's there in the midst of your pain, but friends, he's there 
there's a Jesus, a big Jesus, standing behind you. So if you know that you today are in a battle, I would just even now just ask you to extend your hands or to raise your hands to heaven. Lord, just right now over these battles in this room, we declare the victory in Jesus' name. We declare the victory of Jesus over every scheme of the enemy. We just declare that we are not afraid of him in light of the love of Jesus. Satan loses because he can't love. And Jesus, you are full, infinitely full of love for these situations. And so, Lord, we do just cast off all fear in your presence in Jesus' name. We're not afraid of chickens at the door. We're not afraid of the way the enemy uses relationships to come against us. We're not even afraid of the way that the enemy works in places of power to oppress people. We just say that we are not afraid. And just like Gideon only needed a few in the power of the Lord to drive back the enemy, Lord, we say our trust is not in horses. It's not in chariots. It's not in violence. It's not in our best ideas, our best efforts. It's not in us trying to manage relationships. It's not in our finances. Today, we trust in the Lord of hosts. We trust in the captain of the Lord's army. We trust in the one who rides out in victory with angels and saints and creatures who forever sing his praises. We trust in that one, the king, the Lord of the whole earth is his name. And we exalt the name of Jesus in this place over all of our battles, over all of our, vict all of, all of our struggles, over all of our sickness. And we say victory belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God. Amen. Can we praise him like he has the victory? Let's lift up. A praise to Him today. We exalt You, Lord Jesus. We exalt You. We exalt You, Lord. We praise You. We praise You, God. You're worthy, Lord Jesus. You're worthy, Lord God. It belongs to You. It belongs to You, Lord God. It belongs. Lift up a shout to our God. There's a shout in the camp of the Lord. There's a shout in the camp of the Lord. He's worthy. We exalt You, God. We there's a shout because we're winning. We're winning because of Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. 